This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 61 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I wanted to do something special for my listeners, which was to give you a sneak peek into the Language Therapy Advanced Foundations members group. So in Language Therapy Advanced Foundations, I show SLPs how to create a system for their language therapy. So Language is such a broad, nebulous area. It can be really difficult to figure out what your plan of attack is when you're designing an intervention. And this can cause a lot of confusion and stress among SLPs and really anybody who's trying to figure out how to build language and literacy and comprehension skills in school-age kids. So that's exactly what I help people do in Language Therapy Advanced Foundations, is I give them a system for doing this. And I get a ton of questions in the group about how to support students who have word retrieval issues. So if you're not familiar what that is, Basically, students kind of have a hard time pulling the words out and figuring out what words to say. So kids who have word retrieval issues might kind of talk around words. They might use vague language. Or sometimes you can just tell that they, they've got the word on the tip of their tongue and they just can't quite figure out what they're saying. And so vocabulary can have a huge impact on this. The way that we store vocabulary in our in our heads when we're, when we're thinking about words that is something that can have an impact on word retrieval. And so the strategies that I teach in Language Therapy Advanced Foundation are designed to boost these skills. And one of the very first strategies that I teach in the program is called semantic feature analysis. And basically what we're doing is we are showing kids a strategy that will help them to build the internal dialogue that they need in order to learn words independently and also to be able to store that information. So kids who have well-developed vocabularies do have some kind of internal dialogue when they are encountering new words, when they're reading, during academic tasks. And what that does is it allows them to take information that they know from past knowledge and just learn new information and they can draw those connections between those things. And then also, as they're encountering new words, they're using the context to just create some kind of a, a construct in their heads about what that word means. But in order to be able to do that, you have to have the metacognitive abilities to be able to kind of talk through and take all the information that you're getting and store it in your head. And then when you need to use that word again, to be able to retrieve it. And so there are some strategies that you can use if kids are not engaging in that internal dialogue that's helping them to learn language and new words. 
then what we want to do is we want to create a situation where we're kind of modeling those strategies for them. And so that's exactly what I am showing SLPs how to do when I am walking them through the semantic feature analysis technique. And in the Language Therapy Advanced Foundations members community, because this is kind of a a go-to strategy for a lot of my my SLP students. I know it's one of the things that people really enjoy because they realize this is something that can make a big impact on their students. And so we do have a lot of great discussions about it. And as a result, in the live Q&As that I do every month in the program, I end up doing a lot of detailed case studies and breakdowns about how to actually do this strategy. We do a lot of troubleshooting because a lot of times people have questions. They'll start to do the strategy and they'll say, hey, my my students are struggling with this. How do I help them to work through this? So what I wanted to do today for this episode is pull one of my past Q&A sessions where I talked through scaffolding for semantic feature analysis. So if you're wanting to find a way to boost your students' word retrieval and vocabulary so that they can build those metacognitive skills and that internal dialogue needed in order to learn vocabulary independently and really think about words differently, then you'll really enjoy this episode. Specifically, somebody had asked me about how to do semantic feature analysis for a student with a hearing impairment, but really this particular Q&A will be helpful regardless of who you're doing the strategy with, because I am going to talk about some different adaptations and some ways to think about this strategy in a way that can be flexible so that you can problem solve on the spot and figure out how to use it with the student. So this is definitely something, again, this framework is designed for SLPs. It's something that works within the context of language therapy. So for SLPs who have a 30 to 40 minute session with their students every week where they've got to work on something and really make every second count. It is specifically designed for that particular setup. But certainly, I'm always a proponent of the SLP sharing this information with other people who are working with the child. So there's certainly no reason why somebody else outside of that language therapy scenario wouldn't be able to do this as well with the student. And I actually encourage that. I always encourage the SLPs in the program to train teachers and parents to practice some of these strategies at home with their students. So if you are not an SLP and you have a student that you want to work with, whether you want to work with your child, you will certainly find this helpful as well. And I I think you'll, you'll find it to be useful in understanding how kids learn new words. Now, this, of course, is just one of the many strategies that I teach in Language Therapy Advanced Foundations. Semantics is something that we really dive deep into, but I also address other components of vocabulary in the program like syntax, morphology, phonology, and orthography. So if you're interested in learning what else I cover in Language Therapy Advanced Foundations and you want to learn more about how to become a member, all you need to do is go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language foundations, and you can get all of the enrollment details. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash language foundations. So now please enjoy this Q&A session that I did for the Language Therapy Advanced Foundations members on troubleshooting semantic feature analysis. 
Okay, so I got a really good question yesterday, and I gave a pretty lengthy written reply to the person who asked a question specifically about doing semantic feature analysis with a student who has a hearing impairment. And really the question is about whenever you have to make major modifications to students or to uh, to the strategy of semantic feature analysis, how do we do that? And what are some different ways we can scaffold? And I've answered this question before, but this was kind of a unique case. And so I wanted to just do a quick video and cover the high points that I covered in that, that in my written response, just because this is something that does come up a lot for people. And so I'm, I'm going to cover three main things, and then I'll kind of wrap it up with some other considerations that you can make for a student specifically who does have a hearing impairment. Um, so the first thing we're going to talk about is the predictability of the strategy. The second thing is the idea of using a hierarchy. And then the third thing that we want to think about is just where cognitive priming fits in. So let me talk about predictability first. So the the question becomes a lot of times if you have a student who is you think it's going to be really hard for them to go through the whole process of describing multiple semantic features of a word. And again, when you're doing this strategy with any student, it's it's totally fine if they can't give you a feature for every different, every single semantic feature that we can study. The point is not to get them to do the strategy perfectly. The point is to use a strategy to, to expand on what they're already doing. So if you can get a student who is just telling you like, basic one word descriptions are only explaining one type of information when you ask them to talk about a word and they're not giving you much and you've got to just really pull the information out of them with a million questions and you can get them to the point where they can give you two, three different features and maybe give you a little bit more of a description, but they're not doing the whole thing. That is that's a big win. That's a huge improvement. So it's not about the strategy and the, the response being perfect. It's more about just using using this to facilitate language and giving your students a strategy. So again, progress, not perfection. There's no magical you know, study out there that says like students have to be able to perfectly name all these features in order to be su successful at, at whatever. But there is research that shows that using this strategy can increase students' storage and retrieval and in expressive language. And so really that's what we want. We want those gains. Um, it's not about some, some specific end goal. So keep that in mind. Now, the reason when we think about making this predictable, a lot of times the reason that students can't really give you much is because they don't have that internal self-talk going on in their heads that is like, okay, let me get my thoughts together. Let me think about how I can explain this to this other person. They don't have that internal dialogue. So when you're asking them questions, a lot of times you're kind of doing that for them. What we want to do is model a strategy that's going to help them have that internal dialogue. And so those questioning that all the all the different questions that self-questioning strategy that I teach when we're talking about semantic feature analysis is about giving them a model for having that internal dialogue. So if you can utilize a specific order and sequence of how they ask those questions, then that's kind of a predictable thing. So for example, 
And and I you don't have to use the EET, um, the expanding expression tool with semantic feature analysis, but I do like it. It is a good tool. So I definitely recommend it, but you don't have to use that one specifically um, for this. And, and, you know, I'm not affiliated with her in any way. But the good thing about something like that is that there is kind of a mnemonic device attached to it to where when students are asking those questions, there's this order. And that order is kind of a memory strategy for your students so that they know what question comes next. So the reason that I'm, I don't recommend that you do like just, you know, like random questions and like jump around to all different, um, you know, like taking, taking the different features that you're working on and like presenting them in different or different order and doing it randomly. The reason that I do it in a specific sequence is so that you have that predictability because the predictability is what can serve as kind of that memory strategy. If you have the same set of questions that you ask yourself over and over again in the same order, that sequencing and that predictability is what can help to, to serve as kind of a memory retrieval strategy. So if you're talking about students who might not have that capacity to be able to have that internal self-talk, you are going to want to label that with some additional visuals. Or um, if you're using a, working with a student that is signing, you might want to use some other type of of self-talk that they can use in order to figure out, okay, how can I cue myself? And that does make it a lot harder because if she, if she can't hear you, then it is going to be harder for you to model that self-talk. So you want to think about other ways you can model that language use and that communication aside from just oral language. So so it might be things like like signing, like maybe some written symbols in language, um, your sentences and your might not be as long. You might want to shorten it a little bit, but you want to just think about it as, okay, I'm teaching a self-talk strategy. I want to do it in a specific sequence so that she can cue herself and remember how can I take this strategy, like the main strategy, and modify it so that it works for her? What are ways that she can have some kind of a sequence and some kind of a strategy where she just remembers what she needs to say next? And how can she cue herself using whatever language and communication that she is using to be able to do that? Um, and, you know, as I'm saying that, I'm not exactly sure how people who can't hear, like how what their self-talk looks like, but I would imagine that we would want to supplement it with other forms of communication as well. It does make it more challenging, but those are some of the things that you want to be thinking about as you're figuring out how to modify it. So thinking about predictability and, and teaching them a way to describe objects in a way that has a predictable sequence so you can have that memory strategy. So that's what I wanted to say about predictability. The second thing is a hierarchy. So one of the questions was, okay, she can really only, um, this particular case, she really is only able to name functions, which that's great. So we want to start with that. But we also want to start adding to that and start to be able to have her tell different types of information. Um, so thinking about semantic feature analysis, if you are going in the sequence, like if you're, for example, doing this for nouns, then the first thing that you say is it's a kind of blank. So you say category first. 
it is totally normal for students to need a lot of modeling with categories. Uh, with categorization specifically, that is one of the harder skills to get in this in this process. It doesn't mean that you can't teach it. So we don't have to, just because there is a hierarchy. So for example, the language processing hierarchy from, um, I believe it, it's Gail Richards, um, she talks about the the level of difficulty and the hierarchy of the skills. But just because certain skills might be easier than others doesn't mean that you have to follow rigidly in a sequence because a lot of times language skills, just there isn't this strict hierarchy that you have to follow. So because of that, you still want to model category for a student like this. You can model it. You just might not expect her to be completely independent with it. And it might take a lot of probing and prompting and things like that for her to be able to say some of these things. And sometimes you might be giving her opportunities to use it and giving her probes and she still might not be able to do it. That's okay. You just model it, you do your best, and then you move on. And and hopefully she does get some of the things and is able to respond to some of the different features that you might want to use. So keeping that in mind. um, But what you could do to scaffold it is that maybe you just do category function, you know, um, so for example, you can, you can be talking about things like, all right, what's the category, what does it do, and what does it look like? So maybe you stop there. Um, so, so that would be something that you could do. Or if you wanted to just kind of play around with this, I do recommend that you stick with a consistent sequence as far as how you present the questions. But if you notice that you're doing this and, you know, you're looking at the language processing hierarchy and you think, oh, I think, I think maybe my students might be able to do, uh, describe this type of feature before this other one, for example. And and then you try it and, and it's true. And maybe they are more easily able to name the, um, like where something goes as opposed to how something looks. What you could do in that particular case is that the, the questions that you teach and the order that you teach, maybe you model category, then you go to function, as you're talking through. So it's, okay, what group does it go in? What does it do? What does it look like? Where do you find it? And you could skip over some of those other features that are a little bit harder for the time being if you really feel like your student is just can't process all of that. And then later you can start to insert those other questions in there. Again, I wouldn't be, because of the predictability thing, I wouldn't be all over the place with the order that you're doing these. If you are going to make a modification, stick it, stick with it for a time being and make the order that you do the questions consistent. But it's totally okay to play around with the number of things that you do and the number of features that you do. And like I said, you can keep that language processing hierarchy in mind as you're trying to, you know, probe and test and see which ones your student responds to. So that can definitely be something that can help you troubleshoot and problem solve and figure out, all right, what, which ones might be easier for my student, but you really do have to kind of try it with your student as well. So think about that hierarchy there. Again, like use a predictable sequence with how you, how you work through the features and the order, and then it's okay to modify it. 
And then the final thing is cognitive priming. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this because of the way that people commonly teach things like categories and functions. And a lot of times the way that people do that is in a little bit more of a contrived situation. Um, so sometimes people will just be like drill, drill, drill category, like drill, drill, drill functions. And they only teach it in that isolated setting. They don't necessarily teach it in more of a... Uh, a little bit more of a contextualized challenging situation, which semantic feature analysis is because it's like what you're doing is you're asking students to describe something using multiple features rather than just, you know, like drilling flashcards of, of one particular feature that's a little less functional. Whereas with semantic feature analysis, you are being asked to integrate some of those still skills together. So while it's not as functional as something like reading comprehension or telling a narrative, it, it starts to move in that direction. So we're moving our students in that, that direction. So while I recommend doing semantic feature analysis and having them move through that sequence of describing one word using multiple um, features at a time. So instead of being like, um, you know, like I'm just going to give you a, a, a category and you're just going to name a bunch of things that fall in that category, like name a bunch of animals, or I'm going to give you a bunch of words and all I'm going to have you do is name the group that it goes in. I'd rather have you do things or be spending the most of your time on this strategy doing things like Okay, let's let's describe a dog. It's a kind of an animal. It barks. It's furry. You can, you know, find it in a, a kennel, for example. So I'd rather have you do something like that than just the drill, drill, drill type of thing. Because like I said, it is getting you more towards that direction of being um, more contextualized. But the caveat to this is, is that if you have a student like this, who does need a lot of prompting and cueing, or students in general who do, do need more assistance, there is a place for some of those drill activities at, at the very beginning of a session, for example, to kind of prime them. And, and again, it's cognitive priming. So you don't want to spend your whole session drill, 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 drill. But what you want to do is do some of that drill at the beginning as a warm-up, and then you can move on to the more contextualized thing where you're describing words and, and things like that. And, um, you know, again, maybe you get even to the point with your sessions where you are doing semantic feature analysis as a priming activity before you are writing or reading, for example. But if the main part of your session is you're going to work on semantic feature analysis and your students are having a really hard time coming up with the category, for example, or just coming up with more than one of the semantic features or just really coming up with any, what you can do is you can start your session with some of those more drill-like activities as kind of a warm-up. So how this could look is, for example, if your students are having a hard time working on categories, what you could do is like like, let's say that every time you have them do semantic feature analysis, you get to category and they always get stuck. What you can do is have a bunch of words that you feel like they're, they're going to know what the category is. And, and so you can do a drill where it's like, all right, dog, animal, pizza, food, pencil, 
you know, writing tool, you know, where they're, they're naming category for a bunch of different objects and, and kind of that drill like fashion. And then do that for a couple minutes and then move on to describing one of the words that you just drilled and see if they can remember. And then if they have a hard time, maybe you go back and do a little bit of drill and then, and you kind of go back and forth like that. And again, it's, it's priming. Again, you're, you're priming them to be able to do that skill, but then immediately after you do the priming exercise, you move on to the more functional exercise to challenge them and see if they can apply it. So it, it's kind of this back and forth thing. The, the problem with the, that activity that I just described where it's just drill, 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 well, if you only drill and you never ask them to do more of a contextualized exercise, they're not going to be challenged. So uh, if I if you think of another example, I am a runner and I do different running form drills. So for example, I do this one where I do high knees because I want to, when I'm running, drive my knees forward and I want to have a good lean. And so I'll do the drill and it'll be a couple minutes and then then I'll go run. And I will, while I'm running, like I'll want to use that that form and that that priming that I just did to be, you know, again, driving my knees and, and leaning in the right position. And if I'm running along and I feel like, you know what, I'm getting sloppy, I can stop and do some drills and reset and then keep going. And and so any I mean, I, I like to use the sports example because it's a little bit more concrete. I think that sometimes with a cognitive exercise, it's it's harder to see what's going on in your brain. So it's a little bit harder to understand what's going on. Whereas a physical activity, it's it's a little bit more obvious, but it's the same kind of thing. You're priming, you're doing something that is drill, that is building some foundational things, but then you're moving on to the thing that is more difficult. So that's what I wanted to say about priming. So again, we talked about predictability of the the sequence that you present the features. You don't want to be jumping around all over the place. It's okay if you modify what I've given you a little bit based on the hierarchy of what your students can do, but just be consistent with it. And it's okay to do one thing for a while and change it, but don't be all over the place with it because that's going to get confusing. You want to give students a predictable strategy. And if you are working with students who have a hearing impairment, you want to give them other forms of of self-talk to help talk themselves through those strategies using different visual signs and, and things like that. So that's number one. Then the hierarchy, again, considering the hierarchy, know that that um, we do want to be probing for harder skills, but it is normal for not all of these semantic features to come in at once. And then finally, cognitive priming. Again, the drill activities do have a place. We just don't want that to be your whole session, but they can be used to kind of solidify something that is a little bit harder for your students. Final thing I wanted to mention, we're talking a lot about semantic feature analysis, but if you are working with the deaf and hard of hearing populations, because they don't hear oral language, you know, and they are, they're not getting as much exposure. And a lot of times those grammatical endings and and those, all those different word endings are harder for them to hear and decipher. It's really important that we also work on morphology and phonology and then pair that with orthography as well. So with a student like this, that might look a little bit different. You might want to keep it pretty basic and just focus on some some specific, um, some, some basic 
morphemes that are really common. Like you don't necessarily have to go through the whole list, but that is something you do not want to forget about that. And honestly, I could say the same thing about syntax. Again, remember that especially if they are using ASL, the syntactic structure is not the same as English. So they're not getting that modeling of English grammar and syntax and learning that sentence structure. And so that is going to be something that's an issue with comprehension as well. So semantic feature analysis is something you definitely can work on, but don't forget about those other things too. And it's okay to work on semantic feature analysis for a while, get your student to the point where they maybe can name one, two features, um, you know, one to two features independently, and then say, okay, we're going to, you know, leave it here. And then we're going to cycle around to some syntax and grammar. And then we're going to come back to this later. So you do not have to wait until your students are perfect with a skill before you cycle around to another. Language is very integrative. It's not perfectly sequential. Yes, there are some hierarchies that we know of, but a lot of skills do not develop linearly where there's like this nice, neat pattern of progression like we want to see, which which uh, makes it hard for from a progress monitoring standpoint. And it's also confusing and, and some of your administrators and supervisors and other people you work with might not understand that. So there's where we definitely have to advocate for our profession. But um, but yeah, you can you can sequence through those types of things. Syntax is going to be really important for comprehension as well, especially those complex sentences if you have a student who is who is learning to read. So so yeah, hopefully this was helpful. Thanks for the questions and I will likely put this I will likely put this video up in the uh, in the members portal in the semantic modules in the Q&A section as well. So hope this was helpful and let me know if you've got any follow-up questions. Before we wrap up, I wanted to mention that I will put a link in the show notes to a blog post where I outline semantic feature analysis for adjectives. So semantic feature analysis is something that we can do for a number of different word types. The most common type that I've seen done is with nouns, but it's also really important to do this for verbs and adjectives as well. And then when we're talking about other word types, that really gets more into syntax. So when we're working on semantic feature analysis, we're really working on building those content words in the sentences that we use, such as nouns, verbs, and adjectives. And this can be really important in building vocabulary. And so what we do when we are using semantic feature analysis is just giving a specific strategy that's going to help kids not just memorize words, but also to be able to think about language differently so that they can engage in the internal dialogue that they need to in order to continue to build their vocabulary once they leave your session or your classroom. So that's why this strategy is really powerful. So I will link to a blog post where I go into semantic feature analysis and I give a specific example for adjectives. And actually, the videos that I share in that blog post are taken directly out of the Language Therapy Advanced Foundations members area. So if you've been wondering what's in the program, this will give you a taste of what's in there.
as well as this Q&A that I did today. So if you want to get more information about how to become a Language Therapy Advanced Foundations member so that you can learn how to implement strategies like the ones I talked about in this episode, then just go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language foundations. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash language foundations. So for now, thank you so much for listening. Remember that if you found this episode useful, then feel free to share it with anybody who you think would benefit from this information. Whether you are a parent and you'd love to share this with your child's SLP or their teacher, or whether you're an SLP and you want to share it with your colleagues, I'd love it if you would share that information so that we can all work together to support kids. As always, thank you again for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.